You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2016 thriller, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Speaking of nice and cheerful sounds, the most cheerful sound, and I'll probably go on about it when we talk about the actual autopsy itself, because spoiler alert, this is a movie about an autopsy. Mm -hmm. The rib breaking shears, the rib things, the rib cutters oh my god i love that sound what is wrong with me (laughs) you've always had a bit of a fascination with the process of um dealing with a body autopsies and shit yeah i think uh it's true i mean i look at my notes here and i've got dream job circled and i've also got rib cutters that's about the extent of my notes People ask uh, all the time when we're doing the show, uh, do you have to take a lot of notes when you watch the movie? I'm terrible. I don't take any notes. But you also take hilarious notes that are indiscernible to anyone else but you. It's true. With this one, um, I, I do have a few actual notes and a line from the film. It's usually lines from the film that will jog my memory about what I want to talk about. But this line, everybody has a secret. Later on, when you ask me what this movie is even about anyway, that's going to be the answer. Because seriously, that's that's it. This body has a lot of secrets. I don't even need to ask that question. Do you want to know why I ask you that pretty much every episode? Sure. Why? Because if you go back to our first actual recorded episode, which is not the burning. The burning is is canonically our first episode, but it's not our actual first recorded episode. Back when I barely knew you and I was awkward as shit and I didn't know how to do a podcast with another human being, we were sitting in your old office in your old house way back uh, in Hintonburg, Ottawa. When we were doing the Tombs of the Blind Dead episode, I just asked you because I didn't know how to prompt you I didn't know how to get a conversation going. So I just like, what is what's this movie about anyways? What's this movie even about anyways? I just said that. And then for some reason, I just kept saying. <laughs> it works really well because, yes, I am. I'm not very promptable. I miss social cues really badly all the time. I've gotten better. The podcast has helped us in so many ways as far as our mm-hmm. more quirky personality traits. And that's one of them for me is being able to segue, learning how to segue into things instead mm-hmm. of just dropping bombs <laughs> like I <laughs> typically would. Or, yeah, that sort of like back and forth because um, spending so much time alone all of my life, I need that sort of prompting. And so lucky that you have the schooling and we're smart enough to pull that one out of the hat because it works. It works very well. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that you have a positive spin on it because honestly, sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm just shoehorning it in as, as much as humanly possible just to sort of get that consistency in the episodes going. I, I honestly like you do great. I, you know, when you're doing your um, interviews for your Patreon 
virtual magazine, or even when you're doing live streams with a, another booktuber on YouTube, the the energy that I see explode from you, where you're really, really engaged in the conversation, um, it, it's a lot of really fast back and forth. And that's not done in editing, particularly with uh, A, because I know you and I know what would be, ooh, she cut out a really long pause there between conversations where it's like, oh shit, I'm supposed to be talking. Uh, so anyway, but like when it's a live stream, you can't do that. And so, yeah, you're like, you, you, you can have the ability now to ham it up as if your name was Wes fucking Knife. I do. I have learned. I have learned how to ham it up. And doing live streams and doing my own podcast and wanting to minimize the editing because I'm lazy and have a lot of stuff on my plate sometimes. I put it on my plate. Trust me. But I don't want to be editing out all of those things. So I'm trying to cut down all of the times that I say the same sort of things, like my little filler words that everyone has. Everyone uses them. When I'm interviewing people that aren't used to being interviewed, because I interview a lot of first-time authors, you learn them right away what it is that you're cutting out with the, um, yeah, that starts everything they say. Because... People need time to gather their thoughts. Doing this show has helped me learn that I don't need time to gather my thoughts. And I think it's a radio thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, where you just start fucking talking. The thoughts will come. (laughs) You just start fucking talking. And the worst thing that I have is sometimes I start a sentence and I don't really know where I'm going with it. I'm building the car while we're already on the road. And that can be a really bad habit so you learn to get those synapses firing a lot faster. My ums, yeah, you knows are my worst my worst habits that I have. Also, the fact that I have literal verbal tics that I have a hard time containing, particularly. I have Tourette syndrome, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't know. So sometimes my verbal tics, especially when I get excited, that's when they start coming out. And so I start to stutter and I start to pause and I start to sometimes say random shit. But... That's usually pretty much under control, but in radio, they actually train you or attempt to train you to pause. It's where my pregnant pauses came from because I kept saying like, um, and you know, and so you would get, uh, you would sit there recording with your professor every week. We had a one-on-one sit down with this cat named Ian Barry who I think I've talked about on the show before, but it's just this huge six foot plus 350 pound Orson Welles type guy who would sit in this tiny little office with books and CDs everywhere. And he would listen to your tape. You you could pick in any show that you've done in the last five days. He'll put the little cassette in his little tiny radio and he sits there and he leans back in his chair and he listens to it. And then the second he hears something he doesn't like, Wes, you gotta stop with the ums, likes, and yes, and you knows. All right. Starts playing it again. There's another one, Wes. And, and so he's just sitting there. Well, you give him five minutes of audio and he's hitting the stop button constantly. So they would always tell you, before you say like, um, or you know, say nothing. Because that dead air, wink, wink, will scare you into learning to come up with things faster. Especially because dead air scares people. And mm-hmm. 
I mean, not only does our podcast terrify the masses, we got them shaking in their <laughs> boots, Wes, just on account of the name. But that dead air, even when you're listening while you're walking, you might wonder if your phone has died <laughs> or something. But that's what dead air does live. It's even more important because people tend to want to fill dead air. People tend to want to cut out dead air without the uh, added buffer of visuals where you can see people gathering their thoughts through their expression. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. So what we are we left with the discomfort of dead air. I think recording remotely while it's not as fun. It's not it's not as fun at all, especially with our show. Um, because we fire off one another and typically I've watched the movie right before. So it's super fresh. It's like those YouTube shows where people do a review in their car after seeing the movie in the theater. Mm -hmm. So it was that live and fresh sort of feel, but remote helps. I used to always tell my students when I was talking remote. And now when I do an interview over zoom, if there's dead air, it's fine. Just leave it. Cause there might be a lag on top of that. So you don't have to feel pressured into keeping talking or use that time yeah collect your thoughts it's fine like i'm not gonna talk over you and if i do we can edit it yeah i can tell you what has a lot of a, uh, recordings and one person playing off the other is the autopsy of jane doe this entire film really rests on the shoulders of two actors these types of movies I love. And I get, I'm guessing that's why someone like Brian Cox would do a movie like this is because he probably read that script and he said, you're kidding. It's just me in a room and I'm just talking and acting. I don't have to put on armor. I don't have to put on a whole bunch of shit. I, we don't have to do too much running around. There's a couple of scenes, but essentially you are in this mortuary or funeral home, mortuary funeral home, which is it, is it, is that an interchangeable term or is it not? It's not, but it can be much like coffin and casket. They are two distinct different items. People use them interchangeably and no one calls the coffin police on you. Mm -hmm. It is a mortuary and crematory is what this is. So there's not necessarily going to be rooms for visitation, although we barely see the upstairs. So it could be a funeral home. But it is a, a mortuary and crematory. Okay. Most of them are are combined nowadays. Mm -hmm. So funeral home is normally used as the catch-all for this term. I don't know. We'd have to turn to ask a mortician and see if she has an episode delineating them for us. But yeah, mm -hmm. uh, this is a mortuary and crematory. I don't think they do wakes, visitations, and all that sort of funeral home stuff. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. What do you think about this mortuary? Like, I was very curious. This is one of those things where I wish I was sitting next to you while we watched the movie because I wanted to get your thoughts on the opulence, the aesthetic of this entire place. I loved it because it does have that sort of twisty, turny, creepy old Victorian with the mortuary under it, just like you would envision. There is a line thrown out by Austin when he's showing his girlfriend because she shows up and mm -hmm. shows her a little bit of the downstairs uh, at first. And she's like, it's huge under here. And it is. It is very vast and it is labyrinthian. So he says, well, you know, generation after generation of families owning this 
mortuary, it just has been expanded and expanded to the state-of-the-art complex you see before you now. And he's <laughs> sort of joking because it is old as shit. And it looks like the basement of an old insane asylum or something. That's what you picture. So it fits really well into this horror aesthetic. Some of the hallways remind me so much of old grand theaters or perhaps an old hotel, particularly the red and green combo in the hallways, the light fixtures in particular. It's so pretty. I love the way that this mortuary works or and looks. It's it's just I know this movie's pretty fucked up, but this movie's kind of peaceful, don't you find? It truly is, and I think it owes a lot to that sort of stage play feel that it has with mostly two characters involved. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time in the same sort of rooms. We sort of learn the layout and we get cozy and intimate. And there is that sort of hush of death, even though they have a radio on, (laughs) causing a little bit of a ruckus. So they have a bit of like old rock music playing and Mm -hmm. dad rock sort of from time to time. It is dad rock. Other than those scenes, it's like quiet and you're spending a lot of time with dead bodies and brushed steel. It is a beautifully shot movie and it is using a really conservative color palette. Like there are a lot of whites and grays in this a few hints of red but even that that's it's maroons and not just the blood especially dead blood at that there's quite a lot of it and we see like not a lot of pops of color everything is dark pastel so the hue of the whole movie is is quiet it is the hue of a misty morning and the there's no real score very rarely are Mm -hmm. we greeted with music in this movie and when we are it's glaring and obtrusive and I I love that the light of course it's shot with all of these old lights it seems I think they used existing light for a lot of it and sure we have the glaring overhead lights of an autopsy theater but in between that there is darkness surrounding them so it does create like that quiet island within all that darkness and i really like the tone of this movie and it's very different from Dahl's previous film at this point which was troll hunter a found footage rock and roll show i love that movie so much Mm -hmm. it doesn't have a lot of room for quiet even though there's a lot of darkness and mist and stuff like that but very very different tone very different and I, I did enjoy it it is a soothing relaxing horror movie and i think that helps lull you into the terrifying scares that it holds let me ask you this when had you you had seen this film before we did the show correct yes very much so i was eagerly anticipating this film when it was released i got to it um eventually i knew this film obviously as we said before takes place in 2016 i knew that it was one of those films and our listeners who are horror fans know exactly what i mean it seems like every year uh in the winter months in the spring months this was a december release that you told me that right yeah it came out december 21st so Merry Christmas, everybody. Mm, season's grievings. <laughs> anyway, 
when films like this tend to come out around this time of year, I know this is the end of the year, but this was one of those films that everyone was talking about. Have you seen this film? Social media goes a buzz when films like this comes out and it seems to be that every year there's maybe a handful of films four or five that everyone is going to be talking about this year it seemed to be films like malignant and uh, psycho gorman and uh, stuff like that usually not mainstream stuff although mainstream stuff does get a lot of attention but particularly horror films that have a unique idea or look about them. The Autopsy of Jane Doe was one of those films where I said to myself, all right, I, I got to check this one out because it seems like a film that people are going to be asking me about and it looks kind of interesting. I did not know what the premise of it was whatsoever. Um, I knew that there's a body and doings a transpire. But other than that, I wasn't entirely certain. You had told me that Chris had been spoiled on what this film was about. Um, and my partner figured out very early, I think just based off of the trailer or something, what this film was about. But and I'm I hadn't I'm just obtuse, I suppose. I did not catch it. Did you catch what this film was going to be about before you watched it? No, I did not at all. And I was also interested in a film with a similar title, different premise, same idea as far as it's revolving around a corpse. It's The Corpse of Anna Fritz, and mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. I didn't know how close this would be to movies like Aftermath, which is an extreme a short film that is very grotesque. Uh, I just knew that it was about an autopsy, and I didn't know if that was just like an eye-catching title, like Warm Bodies, and it would turn into some sort of rom-com. Or mm -hmm. Zomcom? I had no idea. Zomcom. It could have gone that way for all I knew. Really. But coming from the uh, creator of Troll Hunter, I, I expected more. And I got, thank God. But no, and I wasn't spoiled either because I didn't really pay attention to any of the headlines or, or trailers or anything. Like I saw the trailer and it was interesting and I knew what sort of tone, hopefully, it would sustain for the movie. Mm -hmm. But one must have been very astute to have picked up what the premise is that is only revealed near the, oh gosh, I don't know, 60 minute mark, really honestly. There's hints throughout the movie as, as you're watching it, but they don't really say the word through the, like most of the movie, the bulk of the movie. So I didn't catch on at all myself. It was a headline of one of those top five blank films of this year that had ruined it for Chris entirely and it was just I guess it was Dread Central I forget exactly who it wasn't the beginning of the end of his paying attention to the internet at all and trying to stay away from it for uh spoiling movies but it was the biggest nail in that coffin that's for sure it was just a headline it wasn't even the trailer he'd been successfully avoiding spoilers for this film because like me I want to watch the film and experience it I've been really avoiding trailers a lot more the past few years because they are all just mini fucking movies and I hate it. I would have hated to have this film spoiled for me totally. But yeah, I didn't know what it was going in and I really enjoyed it. Are we going to spoil that word, that one word that explains a lot of the mystique here? Let's spoil. You know what? Did I already spoil it? But let's hold off until the 60 minute mark. 
And if we do it before, someone's going to be so mad at us. But hey, you know what? <laughs> We're going to eventually spoil it. We're going to have to because we have to talk about that. We have to. We can't not. Like, seriously. Uh, but this movie, I can see why people would have fallen into spoiling it because it's like having a secret you're busting at the seams to tell. And that secret is, what is this movie even about anyways, Lydia? Everybody has a secret. The Tilden Funeral Home has seen a lot of them. And I really like the dynamic between father and son funeral home because we, as viewers, learn quite a lot about the process. So it is, if you're thinking of a career in death work, as it were, highly recommended. You know what I loved the best about this father and son relationship that's depicted in this film? If you were trying to do a story about a father and son who have a very realistic relationship, but you would do a film like this because it's so easy. First draft kind of shit. If you have a father that's been in the funeral business for his entire life, Tommy, and then you have young Austin, who is his apprentice slash helper in this scenario and right off the bat you have uh so what do you think the cause of death is for this particular person that they have been working on and austin gets it wrong you immediately think oh here we go like the kid is not learning at the pace that the father wants or and the father's going to be all shitty and he's going to be hard on him and he's going to see like you need to like stop trying to stick your penis in ladies and just focus on the family business or something like that right the 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 the, the other version of that that is essentially saying the same thing but instead his father calmly explains well this is what actually is the cause of death And when Austin beats himself up a little bit about getting it wrong, his father says, don't worry, you'll get there. Just takes time. And then you're like, oh, you instantly relax because you say, I understand. This is a professional environment, but it's still his father. And he clearly loves his son and he's patient and he is uh, helpful. And they might not have a relationship in which they openly express a lot of things, because Tommy is still dealing with the death of his wife slash Austin's mother, which pains him, you can tell, uh, and has become some uh, somewhat of a recluse uh, since his wife has died. It, it's not, it, 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 they just don't beeline for the cliche. And I just felt that was so refreshing. You are not going to see a typical story of a father and son who bond through this dramatic tragedy that they're about to go through you see people who already love and respect each other absolutely handling this together and i love that about this film yeah same here and that austin isn't a reluctant helper in the funeral home industry and trying to bust out of it like we've seen in other films he is a medical examiner by trade so he is exactly his father's apprentice and there's no problem with carrying on this legacy there is some hint of him going off to school or moving somewhere else that he hasn't quite talked to his father about yet 
but he is older. He's not a teen. He's not like a reluctant teen being dragged, kicking and screaming into this industry. Mm-hmm. He looks to be about 25. Yeah, I would get that early to mid 20s. He kind of looks like a like a dime store Zac Efron, but uh, he. <laughs> He's 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 very charming. Um, I love this dynamic between these two. Brian Cox is Brian Cox. He like this is a superb performance. And the only other character really that we spend a significant amount of time with. And by significant, I mean oh six to seven minutes is Emma, and the rest is just Austin, Tommy, and this body, Miss Jane Doe, a body that that is brought to them by a sheriff who has a triple murder on his hands. It kind of opens a little bit like The Strangers, in which you are entering a world in which a crime has already occurred. And in a hole dug in the house or something, you find this beautiful, pristine, exquisite corpse. She truly is exquisite. And knowing what we know as human beings about the death process, you don't typically dig a girl up fresh like that with cloudy eyes and no rigor mortis. Like we sort of know that. So when they're first examining the body that Sheriff Burke brought in, we kind of have an already disassociative feeling, almost uncanny valley levels, because she looks like she could get up at any minute, yet her eyes are clouded over. And she's quite obviously dead. So it is really already a little uncanny. And they begin the preliminary check of the body and just getting, you know, scraping under the fingernails, checking her hair, checking her limbs and all of that stuff, just the basic stuff. And that's already a little bit untoward. Luckily, we've already been in, in we've already been introduced to the more queasy methods of an autopsy because they did open the film with uh, them autopsying that first guy that you had pointed out that he was trying to guess the cause of death or not guess like guessing is, is a rude thing to say trying to summarize the cause of death of a burn victim a very crispy critter that they had already <laughs> had my favorite tools the rib cutters out with and they had already pulled this body apart quite obviously and very bloodily in front of us. So we've gotten all of the queasy stuff in the sinks and drawers and bloody hands and bowls of organs and stuff out of the way. So we're faced with this gorgeous girl that was, yeah, found in a basement. And at first I started thinking of the Philadelphia serial killer whose name eludes me at the moment. And I always seem to forget his name. I used to have this problem with Christopher Walken too, but (laughs) they found her half dug up from a basement where this triple murder was. And there's no real like apparent cause of death. Like we don't see any puncture wounds, bullet holes, knife things. She looks pristine at first. Did you get a sense that they were digging her up? I got a sense that they were trying to bury her. But I can't say... It looked to me like an excavation, though. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I, Honestly, I had just wondered, because I was thinking to myself, okay, we know where the film ends. So on the second time of watching this film, when you watch the film opening, and you're looking at this body, I was wondering, were they trying to bury it 
as some sort of last ditch, pardon the pun, effort to to fix this, like, I don't know, bury it. And it makes you wonder, but that opens up the question, well, where would they have gotten the body in the first place then? Because I wonder, the only reason why I think that is because talking about Uncanny Valley, the delineation between the soil and this woman's skin, you only see her head, part of her upper torso. The rest is buried in soil. Her skin does not have a mark on it. And so, and she is dead. She is ghostly pale, severely anemic, however you want to look at it. Her skin is white as fuck. And so when you look at her skin compared to the soil, it is such a stark distance. She looks like a ghost. And it looks like she's she has never touched that soil yet is surrounded by the soil. And we all know that that's not how dirt works. So I thought to myself, maybe they were tossing dirt on top of her when everything broke bad for them. But I don't know. I, that's just a guess. I have no proof of that. No, it's really hard to say because it does look sort of in a way like she was crawling herself out of it, but she's dead. She's dead with a capital D. She's not up and walking around or moving or anything like she is dead. And you'd want to assume that they had been burying her, especially knowing the end of the film. But it seems that they had discovered this body in their basement somehow and had been digging it up slowly because the the ground around her doesn't seem to be disturbed so to bury a body laying down because she's prone it would have been like a lot much larger area of disturbed earth Mm. but what's disturbed is only around her like upper torso so she's only kind of half dug up and that's what made me think they were excavating her yeah we don't know where the body came from at all and we don't know even at the, we don't know where the body goes or how long other people have been dealing with this particular body. We don't know if she's been murdered there, which is doubtful. And pretty quickly, we learn that this body must have been buried somewhere else at one point, which owes to the theory that they were burying her because she was buried at one point in earth that does not come from around here. Under her nails, they find peat which is like very common up north and in the Muskeg regions. We have peat bogs, not so much here, even more so in Ireland and Wales and stuff like that. We have more peat that grows up north. And in Germany, the entire like Black Forest is probably a lot of peat. And we also use it in sanitary napkins because of its absorbent qualities. But we don't really have peat in the southern states. And they they point that out right away. The father, being a very good medical examiner as he is, right away identifies that this soil is not from around there. And it's very typical of the CSI where they talk about where the soil come from, paint scrapings, bugs, all those sorts of things. They do that sort of work here to help establish time and cause of death, manner of death, and all of those things. And I really love that sort of CSI meaty bits that they throw in here and there in this movie. And the first one is this peat. So she would have been buried somewhere else, right? You would think so. There's a lot of, we'll get to where I think she was likely from. During the external examination, there's a lot of things that don't really make a whole heck of a lot of sense. For one, her wrists and ankles have been broken. For two, an odd thing that they 
bring out is, well, also she has no tongue. Those are the most obvious signs. And, and really the lack of tongue is the single most obvious signs of trauma because even though her wrists and ankles are broken, you would never know just by looking at it. There's no bruising. There's, you know, the joints are, they seem to be intact. You wouldn't know that they were broken at all. Uh, there's some deliberate cuts uh, in her vaginal canal. And also the, the interesting thing about talking about the uh, the fact that her waist seems to be cinched smaller than would make sense for her body type, implying they don't out and out say it. This is one of those very patient bits of dialogue where it's like, if you know, you know, she likely wore a corset. She's had corset training. So they do document all of this. What they're surmising at first is that she's a victim of the sex trade, human trafficking of some sort. The father, Tommy, has seen this before. Unfortunately, of course, being in the line of work he's in, he's dealt with all sorts of bodies, and some of those had been deceased sex workers. So he's seen this, but his son right away points out there's no bruising. So it's weird that they would have been tied down, tongue cut out, vaginal trauma, those sorts of things that all lead toward a, a quite obvious conclusion, you would think. But the corset and the peat are the outliers. They have it all written down, but they're kind of focusing at that point, like maybe this is it. We've already learned from our crispy critter earlier that the first and most logical conclusion may not be correct. <laughs> so we're waiting for the, that other shoe to drop, knowing that, yeah, corset training, like Austin says, went out of style a couple centuries ago. In some circles, because of course, as we know, there is a very healthy trade in corset training these days. There really honestly is. So if you're trying to be literal, like, okay, maybe she is into some earth-based magics and has peat handy, or she's a gardener and she spends a lot of time in peat because you buy peat pucks to start your seedlings in a nursery. And maybe she's got a little kink going on. Or is just a fancy lady yeah. and likes to wear a corset. She could be a witchy, gothy girl. You wouldn't know. Everyone looks the same naked. It, it could be a lot of things. That That's funny. When you, when you sort of roam in our circles, the notion that nobody wears corsets anymore. And you're instantly hit with, man, so many people still wear corsets, dude. It's maybe not, maybe not in, in your sweater vest, beige slacks world. <laughs> they don't wear corsets, but... There's a lot of circles that are not exactly like, well, I'm not even talking about like the dark underground bondage community. It's like there's lots of there's people on TikTok that wear corsets. Men wear corsets. There's all sorts of people that wear corsets. I have a couple corsets in a bag right now just sitting there, all sorts of them. And yeah, I've definitely tied up other people's corsets for them. Mm -hmm. on many occasions me too and it's not just bridal corsets either but yeah like corsets are are quite popular mm -hmm. <laughs> and have been well before the making of this film but it does start to paint an interesting picture because those are the outliers as you said and the last bizarre piece of information before they start cutting into her is they find a string in her mouth just a string yeah, just a string that kind of will uh, initiate a gag reflex because it's quite long <laughs> coming down from her throat. A fly crawls out of her nose as well. 
They had already inspected the nose and ears and found nothing and no blood, no seepage, no nothing like that. But this fly crawls out and begins a small trickle of dead blood out of her nose. Just a little tiny bit. But it's enough to remind us that she's very, very, very dead. They will do a lot of camera angles and shots about uh, Jane Doe. Hats off to the young actress that plays this body. I had looked up her name before. She is mostly known for being a model, but uh, her name eludes me. But uh, And people say, oh, that's not a very hard acting gig. And I would beg to differ. Like you're expected to to lay completely naked, completely still for the entire movie in a room that I guarantee you was probably not very warm. So uh, you know, hats off to her for for this performance because it is a performance. They will go back to her body constantly, and you start to get this, or at least I did. You start to get into this mode in which you're seriously looking for twitch blink do something something move something move and just uh, they they do a shot of her foot and they're like twitch your toe this is a horror movie i know something i know something is up yet nothing happens but they do such a good job of every time there's something mysterious that goes on they focus in on her face that just vacant cloudy-eyed slack-jawed face and it's so, it's just the the mystery, and that's why I, it's such a shame that Chris got this spoiled for him because I was so engaged in the mystery of this film when I first saw it. Absolutely, me too. And it could have gone anyway, even up until you know around the thirty minute mark when we're starting to open her up, mm-hmm. not just the plot, but her herself, <laughs> and it begins raining outside. And there's a storm and the lights flicker a little bit. Our our horror imagination takes over to a certain extent. And we want her to leap up from the table and grab one of their hearts and pull it out. Mm-hmm. Or just move, blink, something, react, finger mm-hmm. twitch. You know, all those things that we're trained to look for. And it's fun that none of them happen. I've never had more fun with a perfectly still human being in a film ever and i really love the discovery of this film i'm i'm it's a shame that it was spoiled for anyone and we're going to eventually spoil it i'm sure anyone listening has already watched it and loves it as much as we do but it's that sort of like it's just as fun to recollect the mystery that we were unraveling along with the plot of this film i i really like that and yes it is a performance bar none of this actress because I can't imagine there's no goose flesh there's no changes in posture the only time that this body moves is when the undertakers move it mm-hmm. the um speaking of opening her up the uh the the rib scene where it's showing her at a profile while he's essentially cutting her ribs open and so he can get a good look at her it was there's something so visceral about it I was like this is somehow worse than if they were showing me them graphically doing to this because at, the, at this you know at this point i don't know what has happened to this woman but i know enough about true crime and the world that i live in and the stuff that has happened to her so far you instantly sympathize with this corpse i don't i feel something terrible happened to this person and now she looks so still and so beautiful and you start thinking about the fact that before she died 
she was anything but still and she was anything but calm and and there was no serenity it was probably fear and pain and anger and all of these things and now it's just stillness it's it's so poetic to me another thing that this film doesn't do is depict the coroners as horror movie coroners you don't see anybody with like eating a sandwich over a body and 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 like putting their clipboard down on top of the the, the, the no one's commenting on that you know like oh her titties are out like nobody's doing gross ass shit like that right there's a lot of respect and um uh stoicism with this job because really uh Tommy and Austin Austin has uh waylaid his date Emma they were supposed to go to see a movie but he opts to stay and help his father because the the sheriff really gives them i need to know the cause of this woman's death fucking yesterday so please help me out you know there there is this there is this very direct sense of purpose between these two men as they work on this body and opening her up only reveals way more questions she got a bag in her she has a, a bag in her and when they're looking at the flesh where they've made the incision because some blood has bubbled out Um, Tommy says, I've seen this in fresher bodies, mind you, where the pressure builds up and and blood comes out like this. Um, So it's just odd. They find a a fabric bag and what looks almost like a layer of burnt flesh in between her epidermis and the fat layer. Mm -hmm. And it just it's weird looking. It looks like carcinogenic or something. Uh, They're guessing maybe cancer they're doing their professional duty, of course, and collecting samples for the lab. One of those samples sort of bubbles over in the fridge, the blood sample, and it's just an awkward, bloody moment where there's blood all over the floor in the fridge for no fucking reason because he collected a very tidy, clean, professional sample and puts it in the fridge, goes to put this little sample of what looks like burnt flesh or something or like uh, cancerous flesh in the fridge, and it's just the her blood is behaving oddly, that's for sure. Um, not the blood that's coming out of her body, but that blood in the fridge. Definitely very weird. But this bag, they have all of the modern instruments, you know, like a microscope stolen from science class or something. They have quite a few of those sorts of things. So they can do some rudimentary investigation as to what the string was and where this bag came from. It's a bag with a tooth in it. So they immediately put the tooth in a Petri dish. Like they're very, very professional even though finding this thing that would make me stop right there call the police and be like you need somebody with more expertise than me i'm done with this fucking weirdo body because seriously they haven't even discovered the cuts to all of her organs yet but the only time they really get into gallows humor and they don't even hear they didn't at all with this body or really with the crispy critter which I would be calling him a crispy critter were I doing this in the most professional capacity. <laughs> I would still not be able to not call him a crispy critter. Uh, when the girlfriend, Emma, when they first are planning their date and they're about to go before the body is brought in and Austin decides to not go to the film at that time and help his father till about 11 o'clock and then they'll go to the late show, they introduce the idea of the bells on the toes, a very old idea, older than corsets, I'm mm-hmm. sure, where Emma wants to see one of the dead bodies and without being like ghoulish about it at all tommy's just like yeah let her open up one of those trays and they do and she asks about the ringing bell and he explains that they would 
tie a bell to a cadaver's toe in case somebody had only slipped into coma and weren't quite ready to be buried yet or cut open as it were and if they heard a ringing bell they would know the person hadn't fully died and so they have bells on their toes because tommy is like an old school guy and when she's about to reach to uncover the face of one of these dead bodies that had suffered a shotgun wound he rings the bell at the toe and scares her and that's the closest they come <laughs> to goofing around gallows humor like there aren't any jokes about that sort of stuff let alone the eating the sandwich so i'm really glad that you pointed that out because i i love that i, I love that so much and i love that sort of like old sensibility of like yeah we tie bells to their toes it's just old habit yeah even though this guy is missing three quarters of his face <laughs> So I don't think he's getting up anytime soon. Yeah, he's quite obviously dead. But you know, this bag, they find this bag and they set it aside because they're continuing their investigation. And this is where things get even weirder. And that sympathy that you had talked about, where we understand what sort of trauma this body had gone through, despite her angelic face that looks like she's about to take a breath, really. It, it's deeper than that. Her heart is not so bad, but the rest of her organs seem to have knife wounds, healed scar tissue. Her lungs are black uh, from smoke inhalation. All of these things are alluding to a, an, an intensely horrible trauma, but yet her skin was completely fine. Makes absolutely no sense. So they add this to the board. She had been mm -hmm. bound at all of her extremities, her tongue cut out, uh, all sorts of horrific trauma with knives because the abrasions within her vaginal canal are done with a tool. All of these knife wounds, the burning, and we were lucky enough to see some uh, smoke inhalation lungs earlier. So we get this good picture of, yes, those look just like the lungs we'd saw earlier that we were told were due to smoke inhalation. So she was tied up tortured tongue cut out forced to swallow a bag with her own tooth that was extracted in it or at least we think it's her own tooth and the string i guess was part of that bag that was probably what was holding it together originally and then burn and how would you go about starting such a horrific thing to do to a person well perhaps a bit of poison. Yeah, Jimson weed, which I'm fairly familiar with. I've read an old entry when I was young on Datura or Jimson weed or Moonflower, as it's called. When I was young, we had a Ancient Ways book about uh, indigenous medicines and things, how to collect certain berries and mushrooms and flowers and roots and what. It would what you would use to cure ailments and what would induce like abortion and all sorts of very, very cool stuff in this book that my mom had. And it had a gorgeous picture because Moonflower, Jimson Weed is a gorgeous looking flower. Angel's Trumpet is another uh, name for it, because once you ingest it, you will hear the sound of the angel's trumpet as you die in agony from eating this stuff. It is in lower doses, um, a bit of a hallucinogen as well. So it sort of runs the gamut from like mild hallucinogen to something that will make you vomit and writhe in agony to just death. Like it's very, very poisonous, but she has like a whole flower in her. 
Um, I was hoping, dear listeners, that Lydia would know all about this poison, and I was not disappointed whatsoever. I, I know you know a lot about poison plants and things of that nature, so I said to myself while I was getting ready for the show, oh, you know what? Maybe I should Google that poison so I can sound a little smarter when I'm talking about it. And then I stopped myself and I said, that's Lydia's job. She, I, I know she knows all about this. I don't even have to ask. <laughs> I wrote an article about it because it does grow on roadsides and in pe- people will find it in their flower beds and not weed it out because it looks pretty. It's like, it looks very pretty. It's very similar to morning glories. And there's other strains of flowers like morning glory, like moonflower uh, that look a lot like angel's trumpet or jimson weed, or datura, that they're gorgeous plants. So they'll be growing. Like when you walk around Ottawa, you'll see it growing here and there. And it's literally jimson weed. There are some very similar plants that you can get that look like it. But when you know what it looks like, much like mushroom hunting, when you know what edibles and poisonous mushrooms for the most part look like, you you can identify them at sight. So yeah, jimson weed does grow in fields, wild, all over North America to South America, like probably all over the world. And I had been doing this article about it. And one of my classmates at the time from Columbia had said, oh yeah, that grows wild, like way more in Columbia than it does here. And like everyone and their dog knows to never touch it and stay away from it and weed it out of your yard if you find it. Like it's super fucking dangerous, but it's not common knowledge here. People don't know a lot of the poisonous stuff that grows in our hedges and laneways, even in this city. Does Jimson weed just cause paralysis or is it paralysis and the paralysis causes the death? Like it shuts down your organs? Was this a special concoction? Was she, you know, that's what I'm asking basically. At higher doses that aren't enough to kill you so quickly, then yeah, it would. Uh, low dosage don't doesn't. It can be like... Um, a hallucinogen and make you vomit a whole lot if you're lucky. Uh, if you don't vomit it, which putting a whole flower in someone's esophagus and having it stuck in there, so to speak, would probably have this exact effect. She would eventually die from it. I don't know how you would guesstimate the dosage, though. You'd have to really know it. So it's some sort of medicine man would have been able to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's some doings transpiring. I will give them credit for maintaining their cool up until this point because you got flickering lights, you got a thunderstorm, which you can attribute all that to. But Austin seeing things. The radio, the radio changes to a song repeatedly, but that also could be attributed to old radio. You know, the radio frequencies kind of go on haywire. The storm could could theoretically if one of the storm one of the radio towers is is screwing up it's possible to get things scrambly pick up different signals theoretically um but Austin's seeing people in the hallways who could that be i can tell you this much it's probably ends up being the saddest thing possible for this movie because you know when they introduce a pet into a horror movie you know, it's either the last reveal at the end of a film, don't worry, Jonesy's is, or Jonesy is okay, or it's, we have to graphically kill this animal. 
Which is so doubly sad because we only get to see, I think Stanley was the name of this cat. When cats have a person name, it's even more sad. <laughs> but it like has been killing rats in the vents. That's what it's been doing, hanging out in the vents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hearing these noises is explained away only temporarily by the death of this cat. And we get to see a little bit more of that mourning process that Tommy might have been going through with his wife. The difference he holds for a, a dead thing and a live thing and the compassion that he has for something that is dying. Because when they pull the cat out of the vent, it's being eviscerated and it's half alive and he quickly puts it out of its misery and even more quickly brings it to their incinerator because they are a funeral home and a crematorium. So they bring it to the crematory and cremate the cat. And even though that may seem cold to a lot of people, that not only has he put it out of its misery and then walked straight over to the uh, cremation machine and put it in, he still needs a minute. So he asks his son to just give him a minute while he mourns his pet cat. It was his wife's pet cat. Mm -hmm. So it is a very touching, very touching scene. It's uh, it's pretty sad. I, I definitely try to warn my partner sometimes if I know that uh, if a pet dies, um, they're quite sensitive to that. Uh, type of stuff so but it, uh, sometimes I genuinely forget not because I don't care but sometimes sometimes like things like that don't really stick with me in a movie I so I can't really remember all the time if a pet dies or not and this time I feel like I definitely forgot and <laughs> um it it, uh, it it was not received well, but the entire movie was received well. But that one scene in particular was not received well. So if you're sensitive to that type of thing, just he does have to break his own cat's neck. And then he comments about how it's all he had left of it was the last thing he had of his wife's uh, shit like that. And so it's a it's it's a gut wrencher if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff. So just take care. I kind of am shocked after that. He's like, well, back to work. Because even me, if that had happened, I would have been saying to my son or anyone, all right, let's, uh, we're going to, we're going to do this in the morning. I know that the sheriff says that he needs this done now, but I don't fucking work for him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, he's an older dude and like, there is an older sentiment when I grew up on the farm, like you know, you own a dog knowing that someday you're going to probably have to shoot it. So mm -hmm. you kind of temper all of that. Sure, you love your pets no different than anyone else today. Maybe not so much with the booties and pamper parties and little jackets and stuff and fun photo <laughs> shoots. But this, the, you knew that this was a working animal, especially on a farm. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a working cat. It's a cat that's there to keep the rats at bay. Sure, it was a pet cat. But mm -hmm. I think that that's a lot of where his you know, compartmentalization of the death of this cat comes from. So I don't, mm -hmm. I, I certainly, I, it didn't strike me as odd at all, but that's me. Yeah. I mean, the cat is more of a mouser than it is a pet, but it's still, it's still, you know, uh, I, 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 I was just kind of chopping it up to like, ah, oh, he's a boomer. Boomers are like, get back to work. You, you know. Yep. He is, he is definitely a boomer. And the craziest thing about that is you'd think that the death of his pet cat that he had to like kill himself might have put a, a, a stop to their autopsy. But the amount of times that stranger and stranger things keep happening in increments, the amount of times where he was just like, well, back to the autopsy. <laughs> it's 
pretty remarkable because at up until this point, there's a lot of strange things going on. I believe the, the biggest questions they start arising is the age of some of this stuff. Uh, he has to look at reference books to figure out what some of this stuff is. He's trying to, in particularly this bag, it has writing on it, they discover. And a strange symbol, which would look like a sigil to some. And it's got Roman numerals that don't really make sense. And there's nothing really to look up until they fold the bag up. And just like some sort of mystery, a national treasure mystery or something from Dan Brown novels, <laughs> suddenly they can read that it's Leviticus 2027. 20, it's phrased differently. And as for a man or woman in whom there proves to be a mediumistic spirit or spirit of prediction, they should put to death without fail. They should pelt them to death with stones. Their own blood is upon them. Tough but fair. Tough but fair. And that's from the New Testament. So that they're reading like an Old Testament. And it's mm -hmm. the third book of the Torah is Leviticus. Uh, it's basically the, we shall not suffer a witch to live. So if you've ever heard that phraseology, it's a lot of where this comes from. So it's phrased more like, and as for a man or woman in that proves to be a witch... Mm -hmm. They should be put to death without fail. And uh, so that's our spoiler for what this thing is about. We we did make it past the 60 minute mark, I'm sure, when all is said and done. Yeah, Leviticus 2027 20, is exactly what drives them to this final, not a cause of death, because the cause of death is myriad <laughs> and mm -hmm. they are many. But the reason behind it, the manner of death here is that she was a witch not suffered to live and it makes so much sense immediately. Even if you have had some hintings, you know, not many women are burnt to death for mm -hmm. any other reason in our history. So it's something that we're very used to hearing. Mm -hmm. And when they're talking about the peat, they mentioned, you know, up north, we're thinking New England. Mm -hmm. So it all makes a lot of sense, too much sense. And the reasons of her being tortured, tongue cut out, the burning, having... Uh, basically hexes shoved down her throat, those sorts of things, you know, are, are all very in line with this revelation that she's a witch. They seem to accept this fairly readily as corpses uh, have gone missing from their own mortuary. This notion of, I think Tommy says it, uh, perhaps in trying to destroy an innocent girl, they created the very thing that they were trying to get rid of. This woman is a witchy woman who was brutally killed and now is, it seems to be a plague, like her own self-contained plague of death. Whoever is around the corpse will die. Initially, that's what it just seems to be. And she will even resurrect her corpses to do it. I love the sequence in which they're trying to just get out of there when they finally realize, eh, all right, let's just leave. <laughs> like, this seems super fucked up. And so they want to get to the elevator. And this is where the ringing of the bells uh, tied to the corpse's feet are really, really put into play in this story. I love this sequence. Yeah, we've had a small note where 
Austin has seen someone in the hallway. We may not remember that the cat died, but we definitely remember that he swore he saw someone in the hallway. And it would have been one of these corpses that was walking around. Now the power has gone out and there's a raging storm that has trapped them in the basement because the elevator isn't working. And it's sort of half working because the power keeps sort of like browning out and coming back and going off again. They have a generator that maybe isn't strong enough to power the elevator properly. They can't get out of the storm door because there is another entrance to this basement that is blocked with a fallen tree. And the corpse of the man who had had his face blown off seems to be the one in the hallway. Also, it's, you know, that sort of corpse power where he can walk super slow, but seems to be gaining on you quicker than you can run. They (laughs) use that effect very well here. And I like it quite a lot. While the elevator door has opened a little bit and they can force it open and the grate open because it's an old fashioned elevator. You'd almost think there's a hand crank mechanism in there somewhere too, but they finally just get in there and they've grabbed a fire axe because they need some sort of weapon against this goddamn thing. So Austin has smashed out the fire axe and has taken it. And they're trying to get the elevator to go up and it won't. The door jams half open while this corpse is ringing its way down the hallway and gaining on them. And it's going to attack them. It really is. This whole sequence, uh, just by the the damage of the corpse and the grabbing of the axe and everything that's going on in this whole sequence really reminds me of that weird room in the bottom of the hospital in that film, The Void. Do you remember that scene where there's all of these corpses that can't die and they're trying to kill themselves? And there's one in particular that's been banging its head into a pipe for so long that its entire head is just a big hole. Um, That's what this corpse really reminded me of when I was watching it. And this is um, when they finally, uh, Tommy uh, takes matters into his own hand and plunges the axe into this corpse. You instantly get the fact that, uh, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I feel like this is a witchy switcheroo. A switch witch. A witchy switcheroo. It's a witchy switcheroo. Because the person that he kills <laughs> is Emma, the only other actor in this fucking movie, who we saw for a couple of minutes, probably came back to wonder why Austin isn't ready to go to the movies yet. Uh, gets an axe in her fucking chest. Yeah, she's mostly dead once they figure this out. And Austin goes to try and console her. So sad. And she dies quite quickly from her injury. It loses a lot of blood pretty instantly. And then we kind of put it together, if we hadn't already, like, well, it, he had checked the clock around 10 o'clock, and that was a while ago. They, lots of lots has happened since then. She was supposed to meet him outside at 11. She's already taken the elevator down on her own accord because Austin keeps leaving his keys in the elevator. And whether the elevator was working or not, she would have just come down because she's already seen. She's already been initiated to the mysteries of the mortuary. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Super sad. They don't have a lot of time to mourn this, though, because they are trapped. They need to get out of there. They need to call 911, and they need to get the cops to come. So they call 911 because the landline still works, even though the cell phones don't, and the phone gets cut off. Yeah, this is where you're in full-blown 
this almost seems like it would be like the 15 minutes into like a home invasion uh, picture or, or, you know, the last sequence of like a full on haunting movie. I feel as though the, the energy in, in these sequences is so you don't mind how quiet the movie has been up until this point, but you really notice it when all of this like running around and everything starts happening, the explosion of power, because they also have this notion of, wow, we'll just destroy the body burn it it does not go well she is not flammable (laughs) no she is not flammable and this reminds me a lot of the time that we tried to burn a haunted ouija board once in my grandmother's house and we took it outside and we tried to chop it with an axe and it wouldn't chop and then we doused it with lighter fluid and lit it on fire and it wouldn't burn (laughs) it was crazy but this is exactly what happens here although it doesn't burn her it burns everything fucking around them so they have to get out the fire extinguisher and it mm. is it, it's sad to watch because you you know that they know they're trapped in there with a witch that we keep expecting to just sit up at any moment undertaker style and start ripping hearts out or something or even just chasing them around scarily would be enough mm-hmm. it would it would be it would be effective <laughs> but of course she's still not moving even though they're trying to light her on fire they have corpses in the mm-hmm. hallways still trying to get at them and they have some good cg slash practical effects i'm not sure how much of either was used here with uh there's an elderly woman who has had she'd been sewn up so she had her eyes and mouth sewn in the old-fashioned way i guess she wasn't she was probably headed for the cream crematory there was no open casket funeral for her Mm -hmm. and her opening her mouth to scream while she's mm. in the hallway trying to get in, like very scary looking stuff. So the lights are still flickering off and on at this point, but they decide they have to end this somehow. Now that she doesn't burn, what are they going to do? I don't like it, it's it's so interesting how they figure this out because because she also has writing on the inside of her skin when they decide to um I can't remember which when they figure that out, but they when they open up the inside of a layer of her skin, she has writing on the inside of that too. So is it from the writing that they figure out exactly what happened or is this all guesstimation? I think it's just guesstimation. Mm. I know that um, Tommy is the one that is the most engaging with this notion of what happened to this woman and it seems that whatever is happening is happening at a more fevered pitch so what essentially is going on or what needs to be figured out is this body jane doe herself is attempting to regenerate herself is attempting to heal to restore her body um and by doing so you need to um kill i guess and the people will suffer the injuries that she has and she's almost there i guess because like all of her external things have been healed but it's all her insides that are still fucked up yeah all the blood from the initial house where we discover this body and we meet it at this triple homicide uh, would have been the blood that was starting to regenerate her organs and had fixed her flesh at this point our largest organ is our flesh of course so it was the first to heal. When they take mm-hmm. out her organs, they're all rotting and putrefying in the dishes. So anything in her is doing okay, but anything that is set outside just begins to rot. Mm-hmm. So using that and the fact that she was 
a found out witch and that someone had attempted to kill her in in very Rasputin ways. I mean, they know that they have to either keep trying or she is going to come back. So they, the only way to do that is to have no alive people around her for her to feed off, so to speak, or yeah. to finish this death of her, which is also like a, a non-starter because they haven't figured out how to actually kill her yet. Because mm, one of the things you said kill her, one of the things to take note as they discover is her brain is very much active. She is essentially alive, at least in the way that counts the most. Her brain is active. It's just her body that isn't yet alive. And so it makes you wonder if she's she must be somewhat aware. I don't know if it's like, you know, Metallica and the one video where like they can't see, hear, move or anything like that. So they're just like a consciousness locked within a body or what. But it uh, it's definitely true that as things escalate, um, Tommy feels that the way to end this is by sacrificing himself. He's already sustained some horrific damage from being attacked by one of the corpses and it looks like his kidneys are bleeding into his body he's not doing good he's got huge bruises and there's lividity all around his sides so it's only a matter of time before he dies from that anyway so if he just succumbs to that she could use whatever life force it is that he's losing to her to regenerate not before he has to basically sustain every injury that she had i don't know how they're gonna reconcile the cuts in her vaginal canal like maybe his balls get stabbed i don't know he has to like like the the grossest thing to me is his limbs his wrists and ankles breaking i was like ew that's so gross and i think the last thing he needs to do really is to cut out his own tongue right cutting out his own tongue absolutely grotesque there's this uh, interesting thing that I that we forgot to mention is that they discover that the age of the body, or at least the age of some of the things that have gone on to her, is dated in and around the late 1600s. Again, giving you a good time frame of the body. Things start to make sense. The peat moss, the corset. Even though this movie would have you believe no one wears corsets since the 1600s, but whatever, let them have it. It's fine. The bag, string, all this weird, the writing. And you ask yourself, how could this body possibly be dead for centuries? Uh, Very, very fascinating. What Austin does to thwart the witch, I guess is he eventually kills his own father. And I'm not sure if it's entirely thwarting the witch, because I think part of the thinking is that she would have to come back to life for them to kill her again or something. I'm not really sure, but it harkens back to his father having put the cat out of its misery, just not being able to uh, abide its suffering, and he can't abide his father's suffering at that Mm -hmm. point either. That Let the Sunshine In song keeps sort of in, in... trading and it's like an old bible song isn't it it's like an old sunday school song it is yeah oh it reminds me of the uh, types of songs that they would play on like oh brother where art thou any any sort of those very churchy southern 
U.S. songs that would be playing. It's almost like a You Are My Sunshine, you know. Now, of course, the witch has been thwarted. Tommy wasn't able to cut his tongue out. Austin mm -hmm. killed him before that. She still hasn't moved. This is the thing that we love so much is that she hasn't sat up and shrieked at them. She hasn't given them any indication of what they're supposed to do. Uh, her body is what is containing these secrets entirely. So we don't even know if this is working. No idea. Yeah. We get a declouding of her eyes, if memory serves me, right? So yeah. you get the sense that she's on the cusp of some kind of grand transformation. Maybe she will set up, set up like the Undertaker. And that ends up not happening. Austin now's only task is to get out of the mortuary. Uh, and all's well that ends well, right? Yep, he goes running, hears the sheriff's voice outside of that storm door or cellar door saying that he just needs to push. He just needs to push on the door to get himself out. He just needs to push. They're right there. They're going to help him. Yeah, he um, gets spooked. <laughs> he gets spooked and falls off the railing. And uh, to his death, that sort of ends this. It's like such a small body count. But it's so much more tragic. And you get the sense that, you know, whatever happened to bring Jane Doe to them has just happened again. They, the sheriff and them will arrive. Not There's nothing in the way. There's nothing blocking them. Whatever was locking them, this idea that like a tree has fallen or a branch or whatever has fallen on this door and they can't open it. None of that is true. And the sheriff shows up maybe to get information and he just has another mystery he has the same body and now three more bodies yep another triple suicide everything happens in threes it turns out there was never any storm either so all of that was the quite insane power of this dead witch who is yet again another inch closer to reconstructing herself she heals up all of those wounds, the Y incision. I don't know how she gets her ribs back in her, but I guess she just grows new ribs. And the body looks to the sheriff <laughs> exactly as it had when he delivered it. And the only thing he can say is, get this body out of my county. I do not, like, just drive, get it out of here. It's unfair, I think, to be wishing this on somebody else. Like, he doesn't know what went on in there. All he knows is that everywhere this body goes, there's three dead people left in its wake. But, uh, like, you would think that they would just send it to the hospital or something like that to get to the bottom of this. But, yeah, mm -hmm. insane that we get to witness this awesome power, really awesome power, that no witch could have ever dreamed of having. A real bona fide witch. But she never moves. We never see her do anything it's all just influence around her and then the last second of the film little toe twitch that's the best you get yeah. little toe twitch and they actually add in the little bell ring too the radio changes to that uh song to let you know something witchy is afoot which is such an odd choice it is an odd choice but again it goes to that ironic use of music right um i don't know if there was a deeper meaning behind the song, because the lyrics don't fit really with what's happening unless you were to interpret it as let me in, let my power, like accept my power so I can drain your life force and heal myself. 
Um, or if it was while this woman was dying a brutal and torturous death, it was the devil and she let the devil into her to give her this power that she was accused of having. There's that possibility. A really subtle horror film with so many great horror scenes and so much great scares to be had, like genuine scares and it's thought provoking. I really like that. And I like that they talk about the Salem witch trials having been hysteria and innocent women being blamed for things they barely understood and the church creating monsters of them. And like, I really like all of that about it. It's, it's really good. And uh, surprisingly to me, this was one of the blacklist scripts. It was a script that was liked, but not made. It sat sort of in that limbo of blacklist scripts until Overdale had decided that he wanted to do a horror film after Troll Hunter that wanted to break out of found footage. He wanted to do a basic horror film, a no frills horror film that was like a classic horror script is what he was looking for. And someone handed him this and it fit the bill. At the same time, while it would be, yes, a very classic horror story, it's so fresh because we're so used to there having to be a monster for real and there having to be a high body count. We could count the three bodies at the beginning, all the corpses and the three deaths here, but it seems like a very low body count. It's very just high on tension. It's mm -hmm. really a fantastic choice. And I'm so glad that this script didn't like live and die in the limbo of scripts. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I felt when I watched the film for the first time that this absolutely lived up to the hype. Sometimes when people are telling me about these special horror films that are released throughout the year, and as I said earlier, every year's got, seems to be four or five ones that everyone's talking about. Sometimes you watch those and they're not as good as you want them to be. Or they're so similar to other films. And even though it's not like this film, there would be other films that seem similar to this afterwards, but this one absolutely lived up to the hype. It absolutely met my expectations and exceeded them. And I just genuinely really love this film. I, I, I think if, if people, uh, if you've made it this far, I hope you would have paused the episode, watched it and then come back. But if you have not yet watched it, even though you might know the ending now, please, I beg of you, watch this film. Uh, it, it's just absolutely incredible. And it's 86 fucking minutes long. You got 86 minutes. Come on. That's my most favorite thing. I love an 88-minute movie. 86, even better. <laughs> nice, <laughs> short, sharp shocks. I love horror movies that don't overstay their welcome. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, what do we got next for them? Coming up next, we're going to go back into some slash X with New Year's Evil because a new age is dawning 2022, not 1980, but 2022. And because we didn't necessarily do a Christmas film, we did a Christmas, we did a film that came out at Christmas. Uh, we're going to get back into some sort of festive feeling with New Year's Evil. New Year's Evil. So if you missed our Christmas special, um, this counts. Fuck you. We're adults so we can watch whatever we want. But, uh, you know. No Santa movie this year, but a New Year's movie, which we've never done with the exception of Hell House. That takes place between Christmas and New Year's. So we're back at it with a New Year's movie. New Year's Evil. It doesn't get much more New Year's than that. No, it's true. And I haven't watched it in quite some time. This came out on my birthday when I was five years old. 
And Aww. not to say that I watched it when I was five years old. I know, just little wee chibi lids. I watched it only a couple years ago, honestly. So yeah, this will mm-hmm. be fun. Yes, this was not. This was a late, a late slasher film for me too. I didn't watch it as a kid. I I watched it in my early twenties, and then it just became one of my favorite favorite slashers. And I love to watch it every year. Like, oh, you know what? Also, Terra Train. There's our New Year. There's another New Year's movie that we've done. Yep. But I I love to watch this and Terra Train on New Year's, uh, having some drinks. Like, just put like put one of them on. Um, so fucking fun. And I'm very excited to do New Year's Evil with you. Well, it won't be too long from now. This will be coming out over the next week or so, right around the within the 12 days of Christmas at the very least. And then who knows what we're going to get up to. <laughs> Only the witch knows. I'm Wes Knipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.